Welcome to the Calgary Sessions. I'm your host, Jeff Humphreys. This would be a cool one. Our good friend Dowie recommended you and said you should be on the show. And I was, and obviously when he says that, this is, I know it's going to be a fun one. So uh, introduce yourself, name, and uh, who you are. Okay. Uh, my name is Russell Broom, and I'm a Calgary-based, uh, I guess I kind of call myself a music guy because uh, I think to kind of have a career in the music business these days, you have to do a bunch of different things. Um, so I I guess lately I'm sort of the Michael Clayton of the Calgary <laughs> music world. Mm -hmm. I seem to be putting a lot of different things together and different people together, much like Dowie does as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I'm a, I'm a musician, I guess, by trade. So. It's, it's, it's kind of funny when you get asked that question, if you're going to try like to put yourself in a box when you do so many different things, it's kind of a, a tough spot to actually say what it is. It is. And, and Calgary is one of those unique sort of artistic environments where, um, having a diverse sort of skill set is rewarding. Mm. You know, I think in places like Toronto or Vancouver or Los Angeles, I think it's real important to be good at a certain thing. And then you sort of create a niche and you, you create a buzz because you're the, you know, you're that guy that yep. does that or that yep. person that does this. And in Calgary, it's because we have such a difficult time with talent retention um, that a lot of people that that do this for a living sort of get pushed into all these different environments, whether it's, you know, producing records or doing TV and film music or, or doing like uh, musical direction for live shows or theater things. There's all these other sort of sub groups of having a music career. And, and I think to make it viable in Calgary, you have to dip your toe into quite a few of those. Mm -hmm. And luckily my brain sort of enjoys that. Like I don't like working the same muscle every day. Yeah. So the idea of just doing one thing until the end of time is not appealing to me mm -hmm. and never has been, which is probably one of the reasons I stayed. Cause there's, there's just, you can do so many different things. Yeah. And, and you can invent things yeah. and people are kind of willing to try stuff, yep. you know, because, you know, sometimes out of naivete and just some, sometimes out of that sheer sense of chutzpah that Calgary tends to have where people don't have the perspective or haven't been beaten down yet. Mm -hmm. That sort of happens to artists and, you know, creative people of all genres and all fields in different cities where you have to kind of hone your craft or fit into something that already exists. Mm -hmm. Calgary doesn't have enough of that infrastructure. So we have to create things here. And sometimes we get lucky and it works and sometimes we don't. Yeah. But just by nature, I think being a creative in this city, uh, it's it, you have to draw from a broad spectrum of things in order to apply that into something that you can make a living doing. Yep. It's interesting you say that. Um, the creative piece, I think you said it a few times, which is really interesting because like talking with creative people on the show is really fun for me mm -hmm. just because it's a different way to, it's a different approach to everything, which is kind of refreshing for me to actually listen to. So okay, this would be, this would be a cool one. Um, so the gist of the show is I like the guests to go back to a certain point in their life Sure. Kind of like how you grew up, where you grew up, your inspiration back then. And we kind of weave a path all the way to the end to where you are today. So cool. pick a spot, go back to where things starting to click for you. Okay. Uh, well, it's kind of weird. There's a bunch of, of sort of circles that have come around in my life uh, recently that sort of the seeds were planted when I was a kid. And um, I, was, I was born in Northern England. And my dad was a merchant marine. So when I was really young, we didn't see him much because he was on ships for 10 months of the year. And uh, my family emigrated to Canada. And that's when I really sort of started growing up. I think we were two or three when I 
we moved here. And then we ended up in Calgary when I was about five years old. Um, But my dad always listened to country music. Like he was a British guy, but when he was on these ships, he got exposed to kind of 60s and 70s country music that he fell in love with. Mm. And being a kid, I hated it. I was like this, I can't stand this. Just because dad was listening to it? Just because dad was listening to it and kids are jerks, right? Um, And I had an older brother and sister who were musical and, you know, they had really eclectic taste in music. So when I was growing up, it was, you know, the B-52s and when I was in junior high, I went dressed up as when Devo appeared on Saturday Night Live with the black t-shirts with the Devo (laughs) stencils on it. This is pre sort of beehive helmets and stuff. And everyone at school was like, I don't know what you're dressed up as. You're the nerdiest kid on the planet. (laughs) Yes, I am. You know, and I'm like, fair enough. But uh, that music, I just, all of a sudden I had this real uh, uh, joy, uh, discovered this joy in listening to music and all the music that I was exposed to more from my siblings and my parents, because mm. I thought their stuff was kind of boring and sucked. Yep. Um, so yeah, music was a really, was around the house when I was young and was important in everybody's lives. And just, I just like on, like yeah. music's on or people yeah. talking about it, like, or they got a new record or something like you got to listen to this. Like there was just a conversation that was always happening. All of those things. Mm. Cause you know, in the seventies it was, you'd buy a record and you'd have this large record sleeve with pictures on it. Yep. And sometimes you'd try and wonder, well, how does the picture represent the sound? Mm. And then like the the just the sheer joy of going through a, a record sleeve and listening to the contents of it like it's such an immersive experience um that it, i just fell in love with it mm-hmm. and then when i started playing guitar i would kind of borrow my brother or sister's instruments and then eventually got my own um because i was kind of a nerdy kid and i wasn't very emotionally intelligent or i felt everything but didn't know what to do with it guitar was sort of the way i could I could put all my feelings into something and I'd finish playing and I'd be like, I feel way better than I did an hour ago. Hmm. This is great. Wait, right? How old are you when you figured that out? Uh, we, like, it's odd. My first real connection to having a, an emotional release through music, I remember it and I had to relay, relay the story recently, but it was, I heard um, We Are the Champions by Queen on a mm-hmm. 45 and I really wanted to play hockey when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But when I was six, I had this really weird esoteric injury where I had a hernia, which is kind of unheard wow. of for a kid that age. Yeah, yeah. So basically there was a couple – and I didn't play in like leagues or anything. We just played hockey down at the – I grew up in Lake Bonavista and we'd go to the lake. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, this is fun. Maybe I want to get into this. Mm-hmm. But I had this injury and I couldn't participate. And I was really heartbroken by that. And then I heard this song and it sort of made the heartbreak go from – this sort of level of self-loathing to this this level of like, oh, that was such an emotional release. Mm-hmm. And then I would listen to it over and over again and kind of have a little moan or a little whine about my life at that point being a, so hard done yeah, by a yeah, six-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> but it, whatever it was, is I felt things probably more than some other kids did. Mm-hmm. And music seemed to be a, a way of of sort of accommodating those feelings and finding a place to put them. And then when I discovered the instrument, um, like I played guitar and I played drums when I was quite young. Yep. Just because your your siblings had it around, it was like, you're next in line, where you go? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or I just kind of borrow it without asking them and then, you know, be treated accordingly after with a (laughs) stick or something. But, um, you know, it, it just, I just found this connection to music, you know, as a listener. And then when I started playing the guitar, it wasn't, physically really difficult for me to do it so I kind of had this aptitude and that sort of freed up some of that learning curve and that pain because immediately it was like I could feel something when I played it Hmm. and that was that was a really young connection to music for me 
and most of it was like you know it was rock stuff you know jackson brown records it was devo it was b52s it was the first sex pistols record because this was a late 70s it was uh the first record i ever bought was armed forces by elvis costello and the attractions because i heard the song oliver's army and i really liked the piano part in it and the melody of course mm-hmm. i didn't know lyrically what it meant uh, I didn't know anything about South African history. But, you know, not. Yeah, yeah, not at six. <laughs> not but, but I was like, I like the sound of the song. And, mm-hmm. and so all these things just, and because the music was available to me, because my brother and sister were consumers of music in a, in a big way, that I was kind of overexposed mm-hmm. uh, to it. And, uh, and it was great. But I couldn't stand country music. And then, funny enough, a few years ago, I got a call from Ian Tyson's manager to go and audition to play with him. And Ian and Sylvia were my dad's favorites when I was a kid. So I kind of subconsciously knew most of the songs mm-hmm. from that era mm-hmm. uh, because I'd heard them growing up, you know? Yep. And then uh, to have the opportunity to work with Ian for a couple of years, which was uh, was like going to school uh, on how to write a song, no you way. know? Because he's probably one of the finest songwriters we've ever had. Um, it was an interesting sort of full circle moment for me because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the industry for me as a musician, I, I, I work in a lot of country music sort of fields or sort of genres of it, even though it's not something I've always sort of listened to. It's been part of my life, but it's it's stuck in my subconscious and my DNA from hearing it relentlessly as a child. So when you had to go to that um, audition, mm-hmm. the songs that I'm sure they give you a list of songs you have to play. Right. Did you have to study them very intently to figure them out? Or did you just kind of know them and it was well, a natural thing? A bit of both. I mean, you know, being the job of a guitar player, there's a few different ways to look at it, you know, and I've always been rewarded for, for being creative with it. Mm. Right. Like, um, if you, like my day job of playing the guitar doesn't involve somebody putting a sheet of paper with black dots and notes on it in front of me and me having to execute that. What I usually get is some poorly written set of chords that aren't really written in any particular order that's correct. And then I have to formulate guitar parts based on that structure. Right. So that's always been my job with the guitar. I've never sort of been rewarded for being a parrot, mm-hmm. meaning, um, and this is no disrespect to people that do that because I can't do it. It's just I'm, not in you. I'm crappy at it. Mm. I don't have the discipline and I don't have the wherewithal to sit down and learn how to play something exactly the way someone else played it. I did that when I was a kid, when I was first learning. And then when I started trying to be creative with the instrument, that always got me more attention than when I was just executing something that anyone with a certain level of proficiency could basically do. Gotcha. Um, So when I went into the audition with Ian, I learned the structure of the songs and I learned, you know, how they went and I learned any parts that I thought were key elements. But I also went in with an open mind Mm -hmm. and I went in with the idea of, you know, I, I can play what's on the record, but if it's just him and I playing acoustic guitar and electric guitar, and you're not hearing drums and bass and all the other elements, it's not going to sound very full. So I'm going to do something to sort of fill up the sound a bit. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I sort of have built an element of my career on as well, is mm-hmm. sort of creating kind of these textures and atmospheres behind um, artists I work with. Cool. And uh, so with Ian, it was, yeah, like it was learning the songs and knowing the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was using that as a starting point to see what we would come up with. Yep. And Ian was quite open to that, which was great. I wasn't sure if he would be. Mm-hmm. I was hoping it would be. But also, if he just told me to play it exactly like the record, I would have sat down and done it just out of the sheer respect for the man and his mm-hmm. legacy. So mm-hmm. um, so walk me back when you're kind of growing up. <clears throat> is music 
kind of taking over then at a young age, like all the way through like junior high, high school? Is it like just, is it everything for you or are you kind of up to different things? Oh, everything. Yeah. Um, when I was 14, some friends of mine uh, started a band and they already had a drummer. And at that point I was playing drums more, mm-hmm. um, but I still had an electric guitar yep. that I got when I was younger. And what so, was the, why, why would you go on, why were we going that way? Like why were the, why was the drums consuming more of your energy? It's really fun to hit stuff, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but guitar, I think I had more of an aptitude for it. Although now, you know, my, my vice is following drummers on Instagram because I just love good drummers. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's something that I just find so much joy in. Yeah. But the opportunity was for a guitar player, not a drummer, to be in this band. And I wanted to be in a band. I wanted to play music with these people because mm-hmm. they were good friends. And uh, and I started doing it, and I immediately got hooked on it. Um, and for me, getting hooked on that, it wasn't playing in front of people and, and sort of having people clap or even people's reactions to doing it. It's the work. It's you, you sit there and you learn a song and you play it with people and then you improvise and you create something different with it. And it's all in this moment. And that's like, that's the greatest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. The, the best high I've ever experienced is playing music, you know? Do you um, remember like yeah. the first? I, I don't remember distinctly the first time. I just remember it was pretty easy for me to be that yeah. immersed in it. And yeah. then I found out it was weird later mm-hmm. when people would be like, well, I don't like, I can't relate to that. And I'd be like, well, why not? How mm-hmm. do you play music otherwise? I don't mm-hmm. understand. Mm-hmm. And it's that naivete which sort of gives you the the balls to do something different, yeah, right? Yeah. But uh, so do you we chase had this that. Band. Sorry. Sorry, do you chase that feeling? No, no, no. Like, I trust it. Yeah, I trust that it shows up. I don't chase it. Mm. That's that's a terrible road to go down. Um, you just have to you have to take it for granted to the degree that you trust it will show up when it needs to. And I think that's my relationship with I guess the muse or whatever it is. But it's trust mm-hmm. and it's mutual respect, but it's never chasing it or never asking too much of it. Did you figure that out early? Yeah. It's a very interesting say, thing to, well, how, it's an interesting approach to trust it and not chase it. The trust, it's not, it's not blind trust, but what is it? Just confidence or what is that trust? Where does that trust come from? It's, it's born of experiencing it consistently enough on your own that you don't see any other way to do it, Right. So I think because I was kind of a nerdy kid and I was isolated and I would I would come home and play guitar and then I would go play with my friends in the band that uh, I just assumed that everyone else was experiencing it on the same to the same depth that I was, meaning that it made me feel so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, the best gigs have always been the ones where I'm on stage and I'm thinking about laundry or I'm thinking about <laughs> where's my car parked. I'm not thinking about the music. I'm not trying to do anything other than to be in it. Yeah. Um, and I did learn that at a young age and I didn't realize I learned that at a young age until people started asking me questions like Mm -hmm. that much later. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it was another way to do it, but, um, I just, I loved it. And the band was fun and we go out and play and, and, uh, and then our mutual friend Dowie Wood, uh, saw me play in a music festival when I was in high school. I think it was in grade 10 and our jazz band was performing and we had a song called, um, chicken yard social which had like a funky rock and roll guitar solo did you help write write music back then like as part of, like the collaboration of the band was it you know to come up with a song was yeah it, it was yeah a... there used to be a cbc show called switchback okay. way back when 
Um, and our band was called The Outcasts, and we wrote an original song. And because of that, we got a, a chance to play it on the show, which was really funny on a Sunday morning. So you felt like a rock star for an hour. But, um, I remember I was on the show wearing a California Raisins t-shirt. No like, way. It's the era, right? <laughs> Let's go back in time. Like we're talking in television and dial tones, you know, Commodore 64s. Like, like All of it. The good old day, that one day that was so great. But um, yeah, so I was, we were writing and then I always kind of created music as yeah. well. Um, I had a unique opportunity in high school uh, to do the soundtrack for an industrial film um, that my dad got me the gig sort of blindly. He mm -hmm. threw in a demo tape that I did with everyone else's tapes and then they picked me, which was really cool. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't feel like the nepotism was too heavy. Mm -hmm. um, but I had a little uh, cassette deck that had two cassette players. So I figured out a way I could record on one cassette and then play it back, have a microphone half plugged in and then overdub the original recording with a new recording onto the next cassette deck. Although it played at a slightly different speed. So I had to retune my guitar every time. Um, Wild. But yeah, that was my introduction into sort of being creative and recording it. Yep, and then get cassette four tracks as a kid. And then that becomes like this whole world you immerse yourself in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Dowie Cat caught up with you when you were you, you were 15 playing at this music festival. Okay. And he was in the university <clears throat> band called the Red Band at the time, which was this great collection of musicians um, that all kind of did it extracurricular. I don't know how to say that correctly. No, you're right there. Early. Yeah. yeah. So it's an extracurricular activity in the university, part of their music program. Yeah. So it was a bunch of people, some community players. Uh, but it was really, at the time, it was the best of the best of the young players in Calgary. Mm -hmm. And everyone was really ambitious and really hungry. And that's when I met Dowie. And then I had a job teaching guitar uh, at a place called Studio 9 School of Music. And one of the other, this was when I was 15. You were teaching at 15? Yeah. Yeah. But um, you were, you must have been very good. I guess I was good enough. Some, or nobody else wanted the job and you're like, I will take it. Well, I, whatever, I don't know. They offered, they offered me the job and I said yes, <laughs> which is where you get into trouble in life, right? Um, yeah. So I did have that job and I was pretty, I was pretty young. Yep. Um, and then there was a guy named Jeff Part who was a saxophone player in what was called the Blue Band at the time because there was two levels at UFC. The blue band, which is kind of like the farm team, uh, and then the red band, which is like the the more the flagship band. Both yep. really great bands. Yep. Dowie was in the red band, and then I got an opportunity to audition for the blue band. And that's when I sort of got into that fold. And um, and then throughout high school, I played in in those university jazz bands. And, you know, they would go play in California and do stuff like that. And yep. I got to tag along. And cool. it was great. But I got to be around these really talented, really uh, driven young musicians. Like like-minded like you? Like, could they... They felt that way to me. Yeah. yeah. And, could, and they could, like, feel the music? Like, there was... I, uh, you know, I didn't really have those kind of conversations. Mm. They were just happy to... Yeah. Play, play music and beer. Yeah. 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 It was, they were all really good players. Some yeah. of them, you know, took it more seriously than others. Yeah. A lot of them are teachers, which is great because mm -hmm. they're, they were such passion driven people that I imagine they're really inspiring as teachers. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, as far as sort of that connection to music, it, it wasn't really, it just, it's not it, talked about. It wasn't talked about. Yeah. It felt a little esoteric at the time. Mm -hmm. And I just probably didn't have the confidence to share yeah. that kind of information. Yeah. Right. When you're um, when you're around those kind of players, mm -hmm. do you look at them and be like, man, I need to, I need to figure, I need to grow into that level, or is it does it keep you on your toes or push you forward, or is it just a, a mutual respect that this is what we're doing right now? I think it's all of that. Yeah, you know, um, it's there's always musicians and artists 
everyone I've ever met and ever worked with, regardless of their skill level, has some kind of insight into music that I don't have or I don't understand. Mm -hmm. um, discovering that is sort of the joy of my job a lot of the times as a producer, mm -hmm. is you look at somebody and you, you hear something unique and you're like, well, I want to work with that. And I, I got to figure out what it is or how they're hearing things. Mm -hmm. And that's that's sort of been a great way to grow it's asking questions not about well how do you play that guitar lick or how do you do that it's like well why did you choose those notes or why did you choose that sound mm. or like what's driving you to make those choices not yeah. not uh it's more about the motivation yeah. that i found interesting more than the technical piece yeah. Te technically i'm technical sure technical stuff can... is, is just time yeah you know and but it's like why yeah. is more interesting hmm. um so after that you're playing the blue band. You're kind of, so mm -hmm. where are you in your, you're out of high school, you're in high school. Well, still in high school. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was in the red band when I was in grade 12. And then I went to Mount Royal for a year okay. to take the, at the time they had a contemporary music program. Okay. Um, and then unfortunately my father got quite ill uh, and he passed away when I was 19. Mm. So I had an offer to go out to Vancouver and audition for a band that like had a record deal and all that kind of stuff, yep. just from mutual friends. What kind of, um, like it, they were a band called Lava Hay. Okay. So just a friend of mine recommended me to go out for an audition and then I couldn't do it because yep. my mother at the time said, well, your father's actually quite ill, a little more ill than we've told you and we please don't go. And yep. I was like, well, absolutely. So basically a couple of years, I kind of hung around Calgary and, and, uh, and my father eventually passed. And then a few months after that, I moved to Montreal, um, not to go to school. I had some friends that were going to McGill, uh, in the music program. And I yeah. basically just tagged along. It was like, I just needed to get away from Calgary. Just cause? Just cause. Just, just to space. kind of digest that yep. experience yep. and figure out what am I going to do with my life? Cause that's such a radical shift, you know, sort of the 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 spine or the the skeleton of your family and all the backbone of everything that you sort of grew up with and into mm -hmm. had changed radically mm -hmm. so in my head it, the conversation was well if i'm not going to have a father around and all my relatives were in the uk so i didn't have uncles or grandparents or really anyone outside of my immediate family yeah. uh that was you know a close family people to help mentor you or help you figure shit out yeah so I split because I thought, well, I need to figure this out in myself. Yep. Um, if I don't find whatever gifts my dad or, or, or uh, you know, perspective on life that my dad had given me up to this point, I got to dig it out and I got to figure out how to move forward because mm. I just didn't really have those those people kind of watching out for me the way that a father would. Yep. Right? Yep. Um, so yeah, I moved to Montreal and... Uh, taught guitar and had a couple lessons with people and and uh had a minor nervous breakdown to some degree just about like holy shit i'm here oh just everything <laughs> just everything being overwhelmed you yeah. know and not processing these these horrific sort of life experiences correctly yeah but in the way you only know how at the time and uh and then also you know realizing that i had this talent but i was also around players who were far more developed and I never knew at that point that you're not supposed to compare your chapter three to someone's chapter 15, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I just assumed, well, I'm not as good as a 40 year old guy who's yeah. touring the world and I got to, you know, either I'm a loser or I yeah. got to bone up and figure it out. Yeah. But I ended up, because I was really jazz oriented at that point. And then I was like, well, this isn't the music for me. This isn't, 
were you writing music then I, well, too? I've always been writing music. Yeah. 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 And weird little jobs came from that. You know, I had a couple original bands. I had an original projects in, in Montreal with a singer named Lori Gordon that had a lot of interest from, um, there was a label at the time called 4AD Records, which had like the Cocteau Twins and the Pixies on it. Cool. And then, because uh, she had a few connections to some people in Montreal that, that you know, had bigger connections. And we had some interest from, uh, the at the time, it was the guy who managed Genesis. They just saw this, this potential in it. Basically, we wrote one song that was really quite good. And then I didn't have the uh, the emotional stability or, <laughs> or uh, I shouldn't say it that way, uh, development in order to look at that opportunity for what it was and really develop it. And uh, I got scared and I quit. Really? And then I ended up going on the road with a punk rockabilly band called Jerry Jerry and the Sons of Rhythm Orchestra. And again, it was like playing this bastardized version of the music my dad grew up listening to mm -hmm. and then the punkier stuff that I listened to when I was a kid. What was that stuff? Uh, the punkier stuff I listened yeah. to? Well, you know, it was like the more new wave stuff at the time, in the late 70s, you know, and early 80s, you know, Joy Division, mm -hmm. and it was uh, Elvis Costello and the Attractions, the early stuff, early police records, like Outlandos and more, stuff like that. Cool. Um, the stuff that's a little more aggressive. It was the first Sex Pistols record. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, from there, it was you know, going to junior high and, and sort of secretly listening to the music all the skater kids are listening to, whether it's GBH, DRI, or whatever sort of a, a set of... Uh, weird acronyms. Yeah, weird acronyms <laughs> that mean something that's cute when you're 13. But uh, the intensity of that music I always really, really liked. Hmm. And when I got into playing jazz, I gravitated towards the stuff that had a similar intensity. Mm. And then playing with Jerry Jerry was fun because it was a little bit of that country thing, but with the amps turned up too yeah. loud. And where'd, and, you, where'd you bounce around? Where oh, was the tour? Well, the first tour, <clears throat> the first day I went on tour with them, we drove straight from Montreal to Kenora. Uh, and then eventually got a couple hours sleep and then went to Winnipeg for a show. Is this like, you know, I picture these, you know, I picture my only point of reference is like the hip, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, their um, documentary. Okay. A bunch of dudes in like a kind of stretched out van, yeah. all the gear in the back and yeah. X amount of guys. Exactly. And just driving. Uh, with a leaf spring that was broken. So when it started bouncing, you'd have to pull over. We had a sledgehammer in the back to beat it back into no. place. So it's like all of it. Everywhere. Oh, yeah. Four story. guys in the band. Mm -hmm. um, I was the youngest guy by 10 years. No way. And uh, yeah, so we toured across Canada quite a few times. We went into the States a fair bit. Yep. Like lots of shows, like playing like Three days a week kind of thing? Uh, yeah. You know, if you're going on tour, you have to make it viable, right? Yep. So you're talking about, yeah, four or five shows a week, usually okay. in different cities, yep. stuff like that. And then, so I did that for about a year. And uh, I just, it was, I did my time in that. I thought, well, I, I, this isn't really working for me. So I moved back to Calgary and I took every gig I could. And at this point I was like 22, I okay. think. Um, did you always know you can, music was going to be your thing? No, you know, like coming out of high school, like was post secondary, like on the on your radar. Or was it like I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm music? It was on my radar, but I, I honestly, I, I got too busy and I couldn't go. Mm. Uh, I never assumed I could do it, but I, I didn't give myself a choice. You know, the thing that I learned when my father passed and a good friend of mine um, named Case Caulfield, who was in a band called Big Bang Theory back in the nineties, uh, he said that the gift someone close to you passes away, what they give you is of perspective. And I was like, well, I got to really think about that for a long time because it was a pretty heavy statement. Mm -hmm. And what that meant to me at the time was 
I don't have a plan B. I have a guitar. I have a pair of army boots. I got a couple plaid shirts and some ripped jeans and uh, my amp works and I'm going to do this. And I don't care. Like, what's the alternative? Mm -hmm. I'm going to die at 53 unfulfilled. Like, mm -hmm. not, that's not saying that's what my father's life was because he traveled and he did like a lot of things that he yep. wanted to do with his life. But for me, I was like, I don't see the point in compromising what my journey's going to be, even though I don't know what it is yet. But it just, that experience gave me the tenacity and the fuck it sort of mentality to be like, well, yeah, I could do something safe, but mm -hmm. why? Like, because ultimately, I don't want to live a life where at the end of it, I have a lot of regrets. Mm -hmm. And uh, that sort of gave me the stupidity and the tenacity and the hard headedness to be uh, pretty much unwavering with my desire to do it. Mm -hmm. Even when emotionally, I wasn't ready for it. There was something in me that just said, you just got to work through it and mm -hmm. you'll figure it out. So I moved back to Calgary. I took every gig I could. I was busking with a rockabilly band called Justin Curtis in the Outer Limits. And it was great because we'd go and play at Eau Claire Market in the early days. And we'd make no like way. 50 bucks each. Yeah. And back then my rent was like 250 bucks a month. So mm -hmm. great. Do that a few times a week. Everything's covered. Yep. And I would play a lot of jam sessions at open microphone nights just as an opportunity to play and meet people. Yeah. Where, where were you jamming? Uh, Back then, yeah, it was, was Morgan's, it was yeah. Chaos Cafe. Do you remember that yeah. place? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I used to do all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And then one time at Morgan's on a Saturday afternoon, Jan's manager at the time, Neil McGonigal, uh, saw me play, saw me sit in with some some people, yep. and then reached out and, uh, and told me of this opportunity to work with Jan, Jan Arden. And um, I had actually bought her first record when I lived in Montreal from a secondhand place on... Uh, there was a couple of secondhand record stores on Saint-Denis in the kind of the, the, the French hipster part. And I remember buying Time for Mercy, listening to it and thinking, she's from Calgary and this is great. And emotionally, I really connected with her music. Just message what she was like, what part? Just all, just all of it, the sound, yeah, the message, just, the, just all yeah, of it. Everything it just about like it. click. Everything about it cool. just sort of hit me in a way that I was like, oh, this is actually really good. And she's mm. from Calgary. She just, there was this sort of truthiness to her mm -hmm. uh, that I, I heard and felt. Mm -hmm. So when the opportunity arose where I could potentially work with her, yep. I was like, well, absolutely. What time, when, where, what do I need to do? I got my amp, I got my guitar. Yeah, yeah. Oh, at that point I had like a couple guitars <laughs> okay, and a so couple you're, amps. Yeah. Ways <laughs> things were better. <laughs> but the idea was I want to do that mm. and I'll do whatever it takes to do that. Mm. Um, and we first met, she picked me up. I had an apartment on 25th Avenue in like Third uh, Street, this little building called the Avonlea. And I had this, this fun little apartment in there. And she picked me up in her car. We drove to Edmonton for a rehearsal with the band. And that was my audition. Wow. And we chatted the whole way to Edmonton. Hmm. And I think it was the shortest car ride to Edmonton I've ever experienced. Like yeah. I just felt like, oh, she's really interesting. She's so different from mm -hmm. me. She's had such a different sort of life experience. But she's killer. She's just a really interesting human being. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, we we played. And then she said, well, do you want to go on the road? And I said, yeah. And I did that for 15 years. No way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wait. oh crazy. Yeah. So I worked with her primarily from 2000 or sorry, from 1993 or 1994. 
Yeah, until about 2009. Wow. And uh, and that was right when I started with her was when Insensitive was starting to break. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we played like small theaters and some bigger clubs across Canada. And then it was bigger theaters. And then we were in the States. We were all over Europe because that song was a hit in Italy at the time. Mm -hmm. It was a hit in the U.S., you know, in you know, my mid twenties we were playing on the Tonight Show and stuff like that. No which way. Was, yeah, it was super cool. Wow. Um Did you know and forgive me. No. Jan at, you know, uh in nineteen ninety four ish when you kinda um started working with her. Was she big back then? Well, the first record had done well, right? Okay. And then Living Under June was the record that sort of defined her career. Mm-hmm. And that's the record that just came out when I started working with her and that we were touring for. Gotcha. So she was definitely on her way up. Yeah. And she was one of those few artists that the first record made an impact and then the second one made a way bigger impact. Yeah. And uh, sometimes an artist's trajectory isn't like that. Sometimes record labels don't give them the opportunity to grow like mm-hmm. that, even if it's just over two records. Yeah. But, you know, the, her label at the time did. And, uh, yeah, and then we were just on the road forever. Like, and what does that even look like? You know, are you 12 months a year, 15 years? Is there breaks? Like, what does it actually, you You know, know, it's weird because there's like a cycle with putting out a record and then touring it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then there's corporate shows, which help sort of fund everything. Right. right? Going like Canadian Tire is doing a celebration of something. You go play some private event for a few thousand people in Toronto or whatever. So there's all those kind of things. There's one off excuse me, shows, festival shows that happen. There's opening slots. Like we toured with Bob Dylan for a week. We toured with the Dixie Chicks. We did shows with Sting and Eric Clapton and Chris Isaac and a lot of touring with Michael Bublé as his opening act. So when you're, how old, like, sorry. This is 20s and 30s. You were saying a bunch of crazy. I'm just like, (laughs) sorry. Um, When you have all these opportunities and you're Mm -hmm. around all these amazing musicians, are you digesting it? Are are, Are you able to like process this, look around and be like, this is an amazing experience and like enjoy it. Or are you just like, this is just part of my life right now and we're going both. Yeah. Yeah. The joy again, it's always the work, you know, when, uh, and then I got into kind of writing with Jan and producing her records and we would always do that together and, and we'd still do now. Um, but uh, it's the work is the best part. Yep. You know, I think with every cycle of creating a record or a song, there's a moment where you kind of peak. And sometimes it's sort of in the middle of the the process of actually recording it and getting it done, yep. where you sort of feel like, oh, this is really resonating. This feels like this is the best version of this song that we can do at this time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's always been the goal. Mm-hmm. You know, it was fun to be around all those people. I was kind of an insecure guy for my 20s and 30s so i never i always felt i had like imposter syndrome really badly i guess you just thought you weren't good enough to be hanging with these guys yeah because that same perspective that gave me that sort of naivete to be really good at what i did right do it from a pure place also made me realize that well i don't know if i really fit into this world was that a constant conversation for a lot of years oh fuck yeah it's horrible do you ever get over it or when did yeah yeah i got over it in my 40s yeah 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 we sort of realized that Everyone feels that. Yeah. But why, how, why does it take so long and why is it, why does it take us to we're in our forties to figure it out? I don't know. I, I, maybe we just get certain things just kind of naturally, you know, we round off certain sharp edges in our personalities that sort of inflict pain on our, on ourselves. And then once that's sort of gone and you sort of stop caring as much about, 
you know, like one of my mantras over the last 10 years is uh, what other people think of me is none of my business. Like I don't care. Hmm. Um, and I don't want to live my life beholden to somebody who doesn't know me's opinion of me. And the music business is the anti that, right? And I was around people who I thought were wildly successful, who seemed incredibly insecure and who seemed incredibly self-conscious. And I thought, God, like I just play guitar in, in a band and, you know, I can change my hair color and I can go play in a, a, a metal gig and no one's going to say, oh, that's the Jan Arden guy because his hair is <laughs> green this week or whatever, right? Like yeah. there's a freedom with my job that I love and I don't want to give up. But people that are in the, the Jan Arden, Michael Bublé position of being an artist and being beholden to, you know, everything they create and putting it out for public scrutiny, uh, you know, that's that's way more difficult than my job. And that's something that I've never wanted to do, never felt drawn to and never found appealing. Mm -hmm. I don't have an ego that works that way. I'm not an ego driven person. Um I, I think I'm confident, but humble. Yeah. And uh, I think that's the safest way to navigate something as ridiculous as the music business and dealing with artists who who have that burden of being under like endless scrutiny. And people can say shitty things about what I do or good things about what I do. Yeah. And I take they both have the same value. Yeah. If there's some merit in it that I feel is going to make me grow as a musician, then I'll take it. And I'll weed through all the, the shitty words or the positive words and mm -hmm. I'll find something I can connect to and I'll go, well, I want to build on that. Yeah. But otherwise it has zero value. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's fair to let it influence what I want to do with my life. Um, but yeah, being insecure and being around all those people that were insecure, I assume that's what it was supposed to be. And then you sort of grow out of that. And like when I stopped touring with Jan in the late, later 2000s um my kids started to notice i was gone we were artistically going in a bit of a different direction yep. and it was like well i think i've i think i don't want to go on the road anymore i don't mm. want to do this yeah so i uh, i quit and then i just kind of dove into producing a lot of independent records mm -hmm. i mixed a lot of uh live concerts for cmt the country music channel for a few years yeah i had all these really weird little jobs and i sort of discovered that as a, a you know, as a musician and as a producer and a, and a mixer and an engineer and a songwriter and a composer, there's all these cool things you can do. Yep. And then when I didn't have sort of the Jan uh, Arden camp calling to pull me out of that world to go do a tour or do a one-off gig somewhere, uh, it let me sort of be more immersed in that yep. and grow. And that was sort of the impetus. I felt like I couldn't grow into what I thought I wanted to do at the time if I kind of kept going yeah. back and doing some stuff with Jan um, when I was kind of moving in a different direction. Did you know that you had that skill set? Producer, mixer, like uh, while you're playing all these years, you dabbling in it besides no, like using I, I two cassettes? I was full on doing it at that you point. Were. Yeah. Okay. Like um, I'd always worked in TV and film, sometimes as a score mixer, sometimes as a composer, and sometimes as just a session guitar player okay. uh, throughout Gotcha. my career since i was in high school frankly okay. um but uh producing records came more to fruition with jan because i was the guy in the band that lived in calgary and stayed in calgary right and part of the reason i made that choice was she was here and if i was more accessible to her then yep. i would have those opportunities to pop over for an afternoon and write a song yeah and uh and that was great and that sort of culminated initially in a record called blood red cherry that came out in 2000 and we had a hit song on it called sleepless that jan and i wrote together and that song sort of opened up a whole bunch of stuff for me mm. uh and then after that we did 
we co-wrote, well, there were two songs we did for her greatest hits record, and I co-wrote one of them with her, and Jan and I produced both those tracks. Mm. And we won the songwriting Juno for that, which I didn't go to the Junos, because we were, it was Jan, Sarah Harmer, Ron Sexsmith, Leonard Cohen, and it's like, well, we're not going to win. And I was working at the time, remember, there used to be a band called the Moffats, and they had oh, yeah. an offshoot band called High Dell, which was two of the brothers and a couple of their friends. And I was... I came off of a Jan tour and I basically went into the studio for three months with them. Hmm. So to get away and go to the Junos, it was in Newfoundland that year, didn't seem really attainable. Yep. But of course I should have gone because Jan and I actually won, uh, which was great. And then a few years later, I got nominated for producer and engineer of the year in Halifax and I went and I lost both. So I'm never going again. <laughs> it's over. No, it's, yeah. If I, if I ever want to win, if I value winning that, uh, then I, I can't go apparently. Crazy to yeah. to do you do you look back do you reflect very often do you look back on your career and no. you know to have to have this kind of conversation just kind of like rattle off the the history of where you came from is it weird to say these things out loud or like no like no it, it honestly it feels like a different person yeah you know I I think you know when my dad passed that whole chapter of my life the first nineteen years of my life <coughs> excuse me felt like they became quite compartmentalized. And that all of a sudden I was in a new chapter because what I had before up to that point didn't exist in the same way anymore and never was going to. Yeah. So I think that's something that I've kind of carried with me. You know, when I when I stopped touring with Jan, that was like an end of a 15-year chapter. Mm -hmm. And then we didn't really talk that much or really do anything for about 10 years. Yep. And then... Uh, a few years back, we reconnected when Jan started doing her TV series, and she asked me to work on the music with it for her. Yeah, uh, work on the music with her for it. Sorry, it's still early. I was with you. Um, I was with you. <laughs> and then from that, we actually wrote and did her last record, well, mm. chunk of it. I did ten songs with Jan, and then Bob Rock did five, and we had Bob Rock do uh, the final mixes on everything, which was just you know, I mean, the guy's a legend for a reason. Uh, he does incredible work, so mm -hmm. it was a real treat for me to sit and watch him do things and, yep. and uh, see how he and why he makes certain choices. Did you right? get to ask those questions? Yeah, like when he he was a he has a personality where you could ask the why and the honestly not. Not really you just forced it <laughs> but no i at the right times i, I would ask things yep. and uh but you know I, again like it, it's always about why like why do you make those choices like mm -hmm. this is kind of nerdy but in particular when we were mixing jan's record he would really even on more aggressive songs he would really push the levels of the acoustic guitars and i'd be like well why are you pushing the acoustic guitar so loud like that seems really contrary to a song that's quite driving quite hard hitting mm -hmm. and he's like well i disagree he's like the acoustic guitar really is an incredibly aggressive instrument if you think about it and i'm like well i guess i haven't thought about it that way and uh, and from that, the takeaway was, oh, yeah, like and now I see how he's hearing those instruments in that context. And in particular, it brought me back to a moment when I heard a Tragically Hip song that he had produced, uh, I think, in the late 90s. He did uh, one or two of their records. And I remember thinking, wow, there's a lot of acoustic guitars on this for a Tragically Hip song. Mm. And it was kind of a full circle mm -hmm. realization. Mm -hmm. Maybe subconsciously I asked him that question because that was a reference point for me. Yep. But, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Interesting guy. 
Interesting guy. Like he played us some stuff from Michael Bublé's record before it was released. That was unbelievable. Mm. And then he did this project with Gord Downey and we got to hear a couple of those things. And it's just like, <laughs> like, this is so great. Like he's, he does, I do not do music the way he does music at all. We're completely different. Which is okay, right? Well, it has to be okay. It, <laughs> right? Yeah, like right, if we're all chasing the same thing, yeah, then yeah. it's there's no point, right? Yeah, yeah. But I like I have an immense amount of respect for what he does, and his track record speaks far beyond any accolades I could give him. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, you it's neat to sort of be a fly on the wall and see someone like that work and see the choices they make and and uh, you know see the success of some of that. Yeah, right? you said it earlier was the um, how ridiculous the music industry is. Oh yeah. To, um, for you to be on the path, well, for you to experience, have all these experiences you had mm-hmm. and then be on the path that you're on right now. Mm-hmm. It seems like, you know, I don't know a lot of people that are in this, you know, Dowie's like my musical, right. my benchmark, right? Yeah. You're doing something different. Yep. It seems very rare. It's like a... Yeah, I guess. Like I, 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 I don't know. I, I, you know, artists and I always say this, artists in Calgary and creatives in Calgary are like flowers in the concrete. We're not supposed to be here, but somehow we push through and we exist and fuck the concrete, right? <laughs> That's a thing. Like it, that is the feeling. Right? It just shouldn't be that way. Uh, But it's okay because I think art fueled by spite is great. Mm. (laughs) It can be. Mm -hmm. There's a motivation to want to do something because maybe that territory feels a little more uncharted here than it does in another city. Do Do you think that because it's like it shouldn't be here, Mm -hmm. that it actually? I don't know what it is. Well, I think it should be here. Yeah. I just don't think that we have a culture in Calgary that. that understands it enough and has a perspective enough to appreciate that every band is a local band. Mm -hmm. The Foo Fighters are a local band somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, like Mm -hmm. garbage is a local band in Madison, Wisconsin or whatever. Like when you pull the layers back, you realize there aren't as many differences between, you know, great bands and local bands. It's just, it's a different part of their journey. Mm -hmm. And, and again, it's that sort of, that realization you get in your 40s where you sort of feel like, well, it doesn't really matter anymore. I'm just going to do what I'm doing. And then the more you do that, the more you realize, well, that's all those people that I admire. That's what they really think. And that's what they're doing. And it's not about the people that are always self-conscious or, you know, the old adage of, hey, what do you think of so-and-so's new record? Well, I don't know. I'm the only one that's heard it, right? You can't form your own opinion. You have to have a certain level of uh, of, of community around you giving you permission to have the opinions you want to have or to sing the music you want to have or play the music you want to do, right? There's always that sort of, I'm going to put it out there, but is it good enough? I don't trust my own judgment enough that I need other people to to give you that, that feedback. And then I think in your 40s, you just go, well, who cares? Mm-hmm. Like if I just do something that's true, then it has value. It doesn't really matter about anything else. And then you disregard sort of that feedback element that can can make you smaller and mm-hmm. make you not as creative and not put as much things as many things out into yep. the world and you you negate it and you realize it doesn't have any value could you have thought like that in your 20s and 30s no way so it's and so to even like um you know the next generation yeah the 20 year olds and 30 year olds to have this kind of conversation to have you know to give them insight into where you are in your where you were in your 40s now like mm-hmm. does that even help does it help them? Would it would it help them calm down to understand that what they're doing right now is is all part of it? Or is I it... don't know, and I don't know if if it should. Yeah. You know, like I think in any creative's development, you have to have that sort of, I guess, 
it's kind of a punk rock phase in the sense where you're just going to do it as a kid, yeah. you know, with whatever minimal information or knowledge you have about it, but you have all the tenacity in the world and no one's really told you no in a way that's resonated with you yet. Yeah. So you have to go into it and, and with that, that sort of uh, intensity and with that determination. And then I think you go through a period of, Maybe something works, maybe something doesn't work that you thought was going to work, and then you get a little more reflective. And that's where you sort of have this dangerous point that you have to be very careful with, where you start absorbing other people's opinions and ideas about what you do in the goal of growing out of uh, or growing into your next phase of whatever your career is or whatever your artistic journey is going to be. But you have to be very careful with how you manage that information because it can actually make you stop. And it, or it can make you so self-conscious that you don't have the confidence or the uh, tenacity to do the same work that you did when you were younger. And then you look for that time and you sort of pine for it. Like, well, when I was young and stupid, everything was mm -hmm. easier. Well, of course it was because mm -hmm. you had blinders on and you weren't noticing anything. Yeah. And you can do that again, but it just looks a little bit different when you're older because you've digested that information. You've got the value out of it. And then you realize there's so much of it that has zero value. Because music and art is subjective completely. Like, mm -hmm. what's a painting worth? It's worth what someone will pay for it, yep. right? And that's it. You know, there's beautiful paintings that I have that I've spent $50 on. Mm -hmm. And there's painting I've spent a few thousand dollars on. And they all have as much value to me. Yep. But how, as far as it being a commodity and that enables that person to create art for a living and we get to witness their life journey through their medium, you know, that's subjective. Yeah. So once you sort of learn the value of subjectivity, um, then you don't worry about what people think as much. Mm -hmm. But you don't do it in the sense you also ideally during that period of however long for me, it was my 20s and the majority of my 30s. Mm -hmm. It's also keeping humble and going, well, I'm, you know. I'm no worse than anyone else, but I'm no better than anyone else. Right. And I think that mindset is something that is really valuable because it's it's really easy to kind of as an artist to be like, well, no one gives a shit and no one comes to my shows. And and, uh, you know, all these people are doing things that are way better because my perception of their careers, which isn't usually what the career reality is yeah, at yeah. all. Yeah. Especially in this day and age where you only put the good photos on Instagram. You don't show the shitty ones, mm -hmm. you know, that part of that journey is keeping humble and keeping focused but also having that set that mindset of well why not me you know not why me it's like why not me mm -hmm. why can't i give it a shot mm -hmm. and if it doesn't work is that the end of anything no mm -hmm. you know as long as you're like indecision is the thing that that fucks everyone over yep. as a creative if you don't go down a road you have no momentum. You have nothing to build on. Mm -hmm. If Even if you go down the road and you're like, I've been on this road for 10 minutes and it sucks, we'll shift gears and go somewhere else. Yep. But just do something, mm -hmm. right? Otherwise, it's it's so hard to start a cold car every morning, right? Yeah, you know? totally. Um, the reason I asked that is just because I've talked to a few people like on this show specifically, like creatives. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so interesting that, you know, figuring out later, it's just, and, and like you just explained, it's just, it's, you can't really give somebody a blueprint and say, here's what, here's what's going to happen. Like your twenties and thirties are going to be like this. You got to experience, like, right. It's, you just have to experience it yeah. and, and trust, and trust that you're going down the right path and it's going to, it's going to play out. 
Right. Is it is it is it blind trust or is it trust with skill beside it? Well, I think I think ideally you make informed decisions, mm. right? Like um, not to be overly calculated, but you know, like the feasibility of me just playing guitar for a living is like no. <laughs> Like that's that as much as that's the funnest part of my job, to be honest. Yeah. Um, when I just get to be the guitar player. Um, Why is that? What do you, what do you, because f- it's just, it's like it connects me back to my initial relationship with music. Mm, spectrum. You know, every time I do it. Um, but the reality is, you know, I've, I've done a lot of things in, in music and I feel like I, I should share them, you know, and, um, you know, I have a very particular way of working with artists mm. and a particular way of looking at their job that I think has value. So I want to share that and I want to experience that. And I want to learn more from those people, mm-hmm. you know, because um, producing records isn't about me. It's about facilitating someone else's vision and then contributing to the the quality level of that. Yeah. But uh, it's not me. It's not my record. Like they're not going out selling a Russ Broom record and like it's whoever the artist is and i have to make sure that they go out there feeling like at this point in their career this is their this is their statement this Mm -hmm. is the best thing they can do and they're and they feel confident being themselves with this being their sort of uh newest baby that they're putting out in the world right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and the balance right now between uh playing the guitar Mm -hmm. and kind of doing the off guitar work the producing the engineering is it a good balance right now or you've have you found at this point in your career, is it a good, you know, a good spot that it's kind of feeling? There's no good balance. Uh, and balance is so relative, you know. We always hear that term, right, like a balanced life. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't be an artist and have a balanced life, unfortunately, to mm-hmm. my experience. Because if you don't obsess about something to yeah. the ridiculous amount that you learn how to do it better than everyone else, mm-hmm. you're not doing it better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And that's an unfortunate reality. I mean, that would be really nice if I had hobbies, you know, but I'm 51 years old and I go fishing once every two years and I don't hike and I don't ride bikes and, you know, I don't do all these things and that sucks. But the reality is I get so much joy out of waking up in the morning and knowing that I'm going to go to my goofy little studio in Curry Barracks and make noise all day and just be like, I, how the hell am I getting away with this Mm -hmm. is great. Mm -hmm. But I'm always really motivated to dive into the work and I think creatives in general, to have an edge over all those other people that ultimately you are competing against, unfortunately. Yeah, because it's like, yeah, there's a lot of people yeah. trying to do what you're and doing. And it's subjective, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and sometimes the hardest working people and the busiest people are the ones that actually get shit done. Because there's a lot of people that do, uh, do my job and your job, but they don't actually finish. They don't hit the finish line, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's all it takes in order to be on someone's Rolodex and have your phone ring consistently. Mm-hmm. But um, it's you have to be over the top when you're learning your craft and you're discovering your voice because ultimately the best music career or I think art career someone can have is that you get hired to be you, right? Yeah. Like whether you're a painter or you're a guitar player or you're a drummer or you're a producer if someone comes to you and says 
you know, like I don't want I don't want anyone coming to me saying I want to do an orchestral bossa nova record. And because I know you produce records, you want to do it. I'll be like, well, I don't know that music. I don't understand that music. I don't. That's not my wheelhouse. I'm not the person to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't want to be thought of in that way. Yep. You know, I think people come to me to work with me because I I do things a certain way. And and sometimes I have a certain sound about what I do, especially yep. with how I play guitar. But ideally, the easiest jobs and the best jobs I have are the ones where I get to just go and be me. And, uh, and that may be a pretty wide swath of things, but that's still the best. And then you're basically being rewarded for trusting your instincts. And that feels natural. And then you make choices from a more confident place. Mm -hmm. And then you can have a more informed opinion. And then you're more resilient when people challenge that. Mm -hmm. Because you don't feel like you're treading into territory that you don't know. But you have to be like... You have to overdo it as a creative. You have to figure out what your boundaries are. And I'm, I'm saying about being creative. I'm not mm -hmm. saying about other things in yeah, life. Yeah. But you have to. You have to stay up all night playing or painting or doing something to figure out what you come up with when you push yourself that mm -hmm. hard. Because that's the only way you really get to know yourself. And then you figure out how do you place that into the world that can help sort of, you know, give you opportunities, right? Yeah, yeah. Where can I put that voice? Where can I put that that visual, that sound, that podcast, right? Like, mm -hmm. what am I doing that's different than everyone else? Yeah. Because there's a million people playing guitar. So why am I getting hired? Well, then I'm going to focus on the things that get me hired. Yeah. It's so insightful, man. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you're like, you're like, <laughs> the, it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's so wild to sit here and listen to you on that, uh, being such a creative person and understanding that being able to, look back and think and understand and realize why things happened. Mm -hmm. And, and even the creative, like going all in and being berserk up all night and figuring something out. It's just such a, there's so much truth to that. There is versus, you know, trying to do a trick, you know, trying to do a trick online where, you know, you're trying to get a bunch of exposure. Like it's just, right. a, it's a quick win you're looking for versus. That's a really good way to look at it. And I think some artists, you know, the arc of their career is reflective of that. You know, they get lucky with one thing yep. and then they can't follow it up because mm -hmm. that was a fluke. Yeah. You know, whereas I look at flukes as that's an opportunity to build on something. Hopefully. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, but it's a weird gig, man. Well, <laughs> as you know, right? Like, yeah. And, and, and yeah, like I've had uh, Justine Giles on here. Mm -hmm. So listen to and watching her kind of do her, build her career and Dowie. I've had some DJs on here and the music thing mm -hmm. is it's a, you know, it can be a very rewarding mm -hmm. creative outlet and it can be a lonely place too and i yeah. think there's when you catch people at different points in their career there's yeah. gonna be a different conversation and that can change week to week yeah like it's and such still an, for you oh god it's such an unpredictable business it's, not, it's ridiculously unpredictable and and that's you know what you're in you know what you're doing and you know what you're into and you realize that and you're just like well that's just that's just the way it is right right now yeah it, it, you know like the phone rings and uh, <clears throat> is that an opportunity and is that an opportunity for me? Yeah. And then how do I make that happen? Right. If you wanted to, if, if you're in a lull mm -hmm. and you wanted to like put some gas on the fire and kind of um, stir up some pot potential leads, mm -hmm. would you do that? Could you do that? Well, I think COVID made everyone do that. Yeah. You know, and for me particularly, uh, when COVID happened, 
I was in Berlin for two weeks just before that with a group of uh, film composers from Canada that were, we were all sent over to experience the Berlin All Film Festival, which is an independent film festival. Yep. So I was hanging out with a bunch of people who I admired for years and were new artists as well. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was a really inspiring couple of weeks. I came home. The idea was I was going into making a record with a young guy named Kyle McCurney, who I'm still working with now, who's in unbelievably talented mm -hmm. uh and then it was the year that jan was going to be honored at the junos and put in the hall of fame so she asked me to go and perform with her cool. which would have been first time we we'd performed together in a long time yeah and uh and then all of that sort of we snuck in kyle's record before the lockdown yep and then uh the junos went away as we all know mm -hmm. and all of a sudden a ton of my work that i was doing just disappeared mm. um the fortunate thing was I was still finishing up season two of Jan's TV show as far as doing all the music for that. Yep. So I had a bunch of work. And then because we managed to squeeze in Kyle's record before everything got locked down, I had that to work on. And then I got approached by an artist named Art Bergman, who I've been a fan of since I was in high school. <laughs> and, uh, and then I did an Art Bergman record. And because I had a studio in a tiny space and I was working one-on-one -on -one with artists, it was safe. And, yep. and you know, everyone, it, it sort of, we complied with all the quarantine issues and yep. we never had a group of people together. But yeah, it was all about that time became really creative for me. And mm. that's when Jan and I actually started writing songs for her last record mm. uh, that came out in January. Uh, so during that time, I was working with Art and I was working with Jan and I was finishing Jan's TV show. And then I reached out to a friend of mine who's a, he's a director of photography named Craig Roblevsky. And he's a Calgary guy and he's, he's phenomenal. We worked together on a few different sort of fun projects over the years. Um, and he was putting up little one minute snippets on Instagram of visuals that he had captured. And I said, and he was putting like stock music on. I said, well, can I write some music for it? And then we did this collaboration. We did, I think, 23 or 24 different one-minute cool. pieces. So that was a conscious choice to be like, I need to create an opportunity, even if it's just an artistic outlet. Mm. Because working on the records and the TV show, like that sort of kept the bills paid and yep. that was fine. But um, it was like, I'm, I can't play with people right now. I can't really go and do recording sessions the way I used to normally do them. Now mm -hmm. I'm doing them all from my studio. Um, I also produced a song for Jason McCoy called We Are One during the pandemic, right when it first started. And it was a really ambitious project on his end where he had like Ed Robertson from Bare Naked Ladies. He had Tim Hicks. He had singers like country bands from Australia, the UK, everywhere. And it was an amalgamation of probably 40 different artists that all basically sent in their Wild. vocal tracks. And then I was sort of put to task to put it all together and wow. edit it and produce it with yep. Jason remotely and create this, this sort of charity single that he wrote. Um, so there were all these opportunities, but they were difficult and they were different. And it ended up being after all that kind of finish. And then, you know, the pandemic was still kind of hovering around, which it still is. Uh, it was just, I got to create more opportunities to do mm. things. So I kept writing more ambient. So music, that was your stuff like that. Yeah. That was your kind of create more opportunities. Yeah. Or just go and do something. Yeah. Like go to the studio and even if I sit there for three hours for yep. the first three days and don't really do much, mm -hmm. it's at least I'm doing something yep. and I'm, something's percolating, right? Mm -hmm. And when it's ready to come out, it'll come out. Yep. And I tend to like to work creatively early in the morning because it's before my judgment and my brain really turns on. Mm -hmm. I'm not a late night guy. Um, and because of that, usually I could go in 
during the pandemic when there's no traffic and go to my goofy studio and just try and create a bunch of shit and then yeah. go home and go back to bed yeah. and then listen to it later. What do you do with it? Did you want to, did you publish it somewhere? Did you like put it out on Insta? Or did Some you... of it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these are on Instagram. Just to like, um, and, you, and your idea was just to be creative, keep your name out there. and Not even of... keep my name out there. Just to, just to collaborate on something. And excuse me, I felt because of Craig's visuals that there was enough mm. there that we should share it. Gotcha. You know? But even as an exercise, like there's thousands of things on my hard drive that no one will ever hear but me. Mm. But you have to keep the pipes going. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you have to stay creative. So in a lull, I just go to work and I pretend I'm doing something sometimes, mm. right? Mm. Or I'll I'll score a film that doesn't exist. Yeah. Or I'll write a song for an artist that doesn't exist or something like that. I'll try all those little things. But yeah. it's it's keeping the exercise side of it and the, just keeping yeah. the music flowing and the inspiration flowing. D- is there any piece of it when you just when you when the music continues to flow that you just you start attracting opportunities? Like if you're creating and creating yep. and creating, like putting it out there, just yep, totally. That things just start. Is that trust that you're doing that? Like you're just trusting that's going to happen, or is that just experience that tells you that? I think it's both. I think you know you got to put stuff out there, yeah. and you have to you have to stay relevant. I mean, at my age, it's scary to be in the music business right because i'm so past i'm like milk man like i'm so past my expiry date (laughs) as far as being a guitar player and producer in the eyes of some people that wield a large amount of power yeah like i don't have a lot of people on tiktok that follow me but um you know but i do have a skill set and a value and a level of experience and uh and a way of of articulating that into facilitating artist journeys Mm -hmm. which is I think why I'm quite busy as a producer and I tend to work with a lot of different styles of music. Like I don't really work in one particular genre. I think I work with people that have a certain type of energy and then whatever music comes out of their faces, I just try and capture and make as good as I can. It's cool, man. Um, I'm being very mindful of your time. Okay. (laughs) I have one, I have one question to end uh, every show and it's uh, when I say Calgary, where's your head go? Oh man. (laughs) Because <laughs> we're staying here a little longer. <laughs> I hate it here, but I've been here for forty odd years, and I love it here. It's uh, it's the most frustrating place in the world. Um, because and I don't know because sometimes it's so it's so suburban and it's so thin and and culture is so taken for granted here and mm-hmm. and uh, you know the value of people like there's so many great artists that are in our like or in our vicinity that people just don't give any attention or credit to. Yeah. You know, we have this national music center and, and uh, you know, this hub, this potential for this thing to be a hub for all of these artists to, to just come together and create things and do stuff and none of it happens. And mm. it's, you know, Calgary is sort of this place of, of ignored opportunity artistically and creatively. And because of all that moaning about it that I just told you, that's exactly why I love it because it's an open canvas. It's mm. there's people here that are so unique and have developed as unique characters and haven't had all of their uniqueness beaten out of them by moving to another city and being told they're wrong and they don't fit in and there's no room for them unless they adhere to something. And that's great. You know, Calgary is filled with beautiful eccentrics and 
and incredible painters, Mandy Stovo, Chris Cran, you know, um, Carl White, all these people whose art you see, uh, like you go to the Wesley Hotel and you go into the lobby and there's these beautiful portraits that are up and it's a local painter. I forget her name who did it, but you're like, these are local people. And, mm. and why are we not celebrating our own? Why are we always looking that looking for credibility that's for permission to find credibility in the local community mm -hmm. that sucks about Calgary. Mm -hmm. And as much as we try, it feels fake to me and I'm going to sound like a prick for saying it. And I don't care because <laughs> there's so much value in here that people don't understand and don't know how to facilitate and don't believe in enough. And sometimes out of spite, that stuff rises to the top anyways, yep. but there's incredible talent here. The, like you go to Toronto and you go to all these other cities and there's lots of great talent and there's lots of developed talent. But the amount of raw talent I've seen in Alberta is staggering. Hmm. And I've never been anywhere where I've seen stuff to the level that's undeveloped but has all the raw material to be whatever it wants to be hmm. that I found in Calgary and in Alberta. And the fact that we don't recognize that and we don't have the ability to create an infrastructure to help keep that here and retain it sucks. Hmm. But I love the city. It's fun. The weather is awful. The altitude makes me sick. It gives my wife headaches. You know, it's so dry here. My skin falls off. But it's great. And there's an energy here, you know. And there's, you know, the mayor is terrific. And, you know, it's great to see someone with a progressive sense of, of humanity and, and, and incredible qualifications be in that job. And I'm so supportive of people like that. And, and uh, we have great people here. Just they tend to not get the spotlight on them that they deserve. Yep. And that sucks. Yeah. But I don't know if we know how to do it. I don't think it's out of, I don't think it's always out of ignorance. I think it's out of no one, there's no f infrastructure. There's no way to amplify those voices that need to be amplified here because we don't know how to do it. Mm. You know, whereas in other places there's, you know, there's record labels, there's management company, there's agencies, there's infrastructure, there's people, there's yep. community that is entire existence is about exploiting what people create. And mm. here we just have a bunch of people that create. Mm. Could you ever be that guy? No. Oh no, not, not. That's a different. That's a different different skill set. Side of the brain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have a really great manager who's good at that. Mm. Um, he's very visionary and he's very tenacious and he's very bright. Mm. So his name's Jake Gold. He lives in Toronto, and uh, he's been. Uh, you know, he mentors me at times, and mm. and he makes me understand my value in a way that I, I always felt too shy to express uh so he's great to have in my corner but uh to be that kind of person i can only help people make music that i feel has merit yeah that's my role and i know my role yeah. and as a producer great and i work with a lot of artists that are definitely at the the beginnings of their careers but uh, if i find it exciting and i find that they have something that i can help amplify then i'd love to be a part of it but that's that's all i can do mm. you know i'm not i'm not capable of of building uh infrastructure <laughs> and working i've been on boards you know yeah. I've, I've been on committees and stuff and i'm just i i don't fit into that world mm. i don't understand how they function and i don't understand their intent once everyone gets in a room and then they start sort of ticking all these boxes of things that they have to accomplish and i'm just like i don't get it like it doesn't seem it seems um uh uh completely out of alignment to what an artist really needs mm. in order to have a career, yeah. you know, but I appreciate they exist, but uh, I find them incredibly frustrating. So. <laughs> Not for you. <laughs> <laughs> Not for me. And they don't like me either. I'm sure. Uh, it's been really cool, man. Mm. 
Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, you sat down. You rattle off how busy you are. So this is really cool that you made time to do this. And I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man.